We've been talking about Paul. We've been talking about what he thinks are his first things. He started with the gospel. He said, you're indebted to people. If you receive the gospel, you can't keep it yourself, Paul said. You are indebted to other people, so give them the gospel. God is preparing their hearts 24-7. So many of us came up with a list of individuals that we felt like were indebted to these individuals. They don't know Christ. And so our job has been, after creating this list, there's five people on my list praying for these individuals regularly, um, asking that God... God would bring uh, Christians uh, into their path, uh, that we would have openings that we could jump in. Second thing Paul said is, how do you know how God demonstrates his love towards you? Paul said, because you were sinners and Christ still died for you. The great love that he had for you when you were a sinner, of course that great love will continue now that you're a daughter or you're a son in God's family. Today, we're going to talk about what is generally considered the most controversial statement Paul makes in the entire book of Romans. This has been debated by theologians on both sides of the issue. When I was in seminary, I wrote a 15-page paper analyzing what Paul said. It's so controversial that the only way we'll get to understand what he has to to do, what he has to say is to understand some background information. But can you imagine a day, uh, a season of your life that was just horrible? Can you remember that kind of season in your life? Um, if you have toddlers, enough said, right? If you have toddlers, that's like turning on a blender without a top. You know, it's like, wow, okay. Um, some of you might have teenagers. Some of you um, are in college right now and it's getting really hard. Some of you, the business has been really difficult. Or you might think today is when you were single. Or you might think, I'd love to be married, but I am single. So where, whatever season you can think of, imagine going back to that. For me, boy, I can think of it right away. I have a great wife who put me through a master's and a PhD. I was later in life. I had a job. We had small kids. And here I am going off doing a master's and a PhD. Well, anybody who's done a PhD knows that the worst part of a PhD is when you get right around the dissertation time. This is when people jump off the boat. Uh, There are people who have done all their coursework but they don't have their PhD because they couldn't get through oral comps or the dissertation. We call that uh, ABD, all but dissertation. And man, when you're in that mode, it is a terrible place to be. Your oral comps are basically this. I pick five experts. They're all experts within the field of communication. I walk in a room with those people, and for two hours, I answer any question they have about communication theory. For two hours, and you actually have to provide lunch for your own funeral. It's crazy. <laughs> so I'll never forget sitting down, and the head of the department, Dr. Balthrop, looks at me and he goes, Mr. Mielhoff, let's exhaust your knowledge. And I was like, I hope it takes more than 15 minutes to do that. <laughs> I would never want to go back to that. You know what's interesting about the Apostle Paul? He doesn't just envision a bad season of his life that he'd be willing to go back to. He envisions a totally different life that he would be willing to go back to. Now, in order to understand the most controversial statement Paul has in the book of Romans, we have to do a quick survey uh, to get us to understand his frame of mind. So turn with me to the book of Genesis. Just kidding. That was just a joke from... Just a joke for my good friend Mike. Okay, here we go. So let's go Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, because his controversial statement is in Romans 9. So in order to understand that, we have to get a quick survey of Romans 8. Prepare for some good news. Paul starts off, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, if there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death would be what the Ten Commandments were meant to surface. Not only were the Ten Commandments meant to give you a moral code by which to live, it was also designed to show you you couldn't live by the moral code. You were under the death of the law. But now that Jesus came and he set you free from that, it means that there's no condemnation. God's not mad at you anymore. There's nothing to be mad about when he looks at you as a child of God. Remember the wrath we talked about last week? Remember Romans chapter 2? We talked about because of your stubbornness that you were ungodly, that you were a sinner, um, that you were an enemy of God, that his wrath was storing up. We watched the clip from Dante's Peak where that flood water was coming right at you, and that's what Paul says. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when it will be revealed. But you're a Christian now. That wrath is not directed towards you. It's been satisfied. It's now been placed on Christ himself. Paul goes on, Romans 8.15. The spirit you received does not make you a slave. God doesn't look at you as a slave. He looks at you as a son or a daughter. That you might live in fear again. Slaves live in fear because they don't know how their masters are going to treat them going from day to day. But you know exactly how God's going to treat you because now he's your heavenly father. Rather, the spirit you received brought about adoption to sonship. By him we cry out, Abba, Father. Remember a couple months ago I said that word Abba doesn't mean daddy. It wouldn't be that informal. It does mean respected, revered father. And that's exactly the king of the universe is now your revered father who loves you desperately. Paul goes on. He says, Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. I love the realism of this. One, Paul recognizes that this life is full of suffering. What's happening in Paris right now as I'm preaching is a world of suffering. God does not hide from that. And he doesn't protect his Christians from that. He doesn't protect his children from the suffering. So that suffering does happen. But Paul says this, and by the way, this is a man who had experienced great suffering, great persecution for his faith, and eventually die a martyr. He said, no, 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 I'm banking on the fact that heaven will compensate for all the suffering on planet Earth. And if you read Revelation 21, what do you get? You get the new Jerusalem coming down. God is going to meet us at the new Jerusalem. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. The first things will pass away and the second things will come. Paul says, I'm banking on the fact that heaven is worth it, all the suffering and toil that we experience here on planet Earth. He continues, Romans 8.23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Remember I said a couple weeks ago, don't fall in love with the hotel? That God has hardwired this world with discontentment. Why? He doesn't want you to fall in love with a fallen world. So all of us experience what Franz Kafka uh, talked about in a book called The Metamorphosis. How many of you had to read Kafka's Metamorphosis? Yes, you were forced to in high school, most likely. But in it, a man wakes up, Gregor wakes up, and he's an insect. We don't exactly know what Kafka is referring to. Most think a cockroach-ish, but he's now a cockroach because he realizes that's my life. My life is like I'm, I'm like a worker ant. That's all I do. So let's run this video real quick. Kafka is simply saying, this is your life. You get up on a Monday, you work, you come home, you eat, you go to bed. Tuesday, the same. Wednesday, the same. Thursday, the same. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the whole thing starts over again. 
So that's your life. You're like a worker ant. And Kafka said, how do you get out of this? How do you get out of the pain, turmoil, and suffering of everyday life? So we all are like worker ants, unfortunately. And Kafka just said, I'm going to imagine a man who actually turns into an insect so we can see the futility of his life. Paul said, I've been released from that futility. If you're a Christian, your work is embedded with meaning because God says it is meaningful. Remember what Paul will say. He'll say, I want you to do everything for the glory of God. Eat, sleep, drink, work for God's glory. So you have an audience. You're not like a worker ant anymore. Your life is embodied with this great meaning of bringing the kingdom to the world. Next, Paul says, uh, probably the most famous verse of Romans, Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God redeems things today. He doesn't just get rid of all the suffering, and he doesn't protect Christians from the suffering, but he promises he'll redeem everything. So the loss that you've experienced in your family, the illness that you're struggling with, the the loss of a dream, perhaps, of a business that didn't quite work out, God doesn't protect you from it, nor do I think he orchestrates it. But he does redeem it. That is the best thing that God does. The pain, the suffering, the loss, he redeems it. Now, he doesn't always redeem it in this lifetime. That's what's really hard. So, but he promises in the next life he will redeem it all. And none of us will feel cheated at that moment. So Paul says, don't worry. God's working everything for good towards those who love him. And then he ends with this really fascinating passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Show trouble or hardship or persecution. By the way, that's not trivial for Paul. Paul would face persecution. He would die at the hand of persecution. Will that separate me from Christ? No, not at all. Will nakedness or danger or sword, again, going back to this time of persecution that the church will go through. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I love the realism of this. Paul isn't hiding from the hardness of life. We live in a world of terrorists. We live in a world of a sex uh, industry that takes small children and puts them into a horrible type of bondage. We live in a world where the people we love betray us. He doesn't hide from that, but he says, but in the end, none of that separates you from the love of Christ. I don't think anything can separate you from the love of Christ. Now, Paul says all of that, and then in Romans chapter 9, he says something so controversial that it's been debated by theologians throughout the history of the church, and before he even tells you what it is, he feels like he needs to qualify a ton. So here's Paul's qualifications. Romans 9, 1 to 2, he says this, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Notice the qualifications. One... I speak the truth in Christ. I'm an apostle, and under the authority of Christ, what I'm about to say is true. I'm not lying. And then he says flat out, I'm telling you again, I'm not lying. My, uh, and I'm in Christ, so Christ is directing my thoughts. And then last he says, and the Holy Spirit has given me uh, affirmation that what I'm saying is true. It's not just me saying something or being deceived. Have you ever had one of those conversations where a person qualifies it like crazy? I said, hey, um, all right, sit down. Uh, nobody's hurt. Um, it, 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 it's not as bad as it could have been. And this is why we have insurance. You're like, what? <laughs> what? 
So Paul's qualification is fascinating. What's he about to tell us? And this is what he's about to tell us. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Uh, What does cursed mean? It means an anathema. It's not that he's just willing to be separated from Christ. He's willing to be under God's judgment. Uh, Not merely separation, but always perdition, always a judgment. Paul's willing to do this. Isn't that unbelievable? Think of everything that brings you comfort in the Christian life. Think of a life in which there isn't God. So I teach this really crazy class at Biola. It's on perspective taking, where you take the perspective of other people and you learn how to do that. Very helpful when it comes to roommates, family, marriage, and evangelism. But I, my students, they'll read atheist thinkers in this class because if you ever just feel like you take your faith for granted, well, I'll tell you what, read atheist thinkers and you won't take your faith for granted anymore, right? So I I have my students imagine life without God, and they do that for two weeks in a row. In the middle of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they actually live as though they're atheists. They're not allowed to pray during the day. At night, they can pray. Uh, But but during that day, live without God, and how does that feel? And it's going to make you appreciate your faith even more. Then, just to drive it home, I show them a brilliant book that is a really depressing movie, okay? The book is called The Road by Cormac McCarthy. He won the Pulitzer for literature for writing this. It is a step on the depressing side because he imagines a post-apocalyptic world where something's happened, he never tells us what, but humanity is literally dying. Uh, The world is growing colder and colder. There's only a handful of humans left. The story is about a a man and his boy, his son, and all they do is try to find food, stay away from the bad people, and try to stay warm. So let's watch a, a scene from the road. Life without God. What do we do? What's the purpose of life? Well, I guess it's to eat, keep each other safe. But there's no grand purpose. You're a worker, aunt, in a world that there's no longer work. You just go from day to day. By the way, the wife um, evoking Camus that we talked about last week commits suicide. She says, why do I want to live? To live in a world without government, art, God? Why live in a world like that? So imagine your life without God. Um, Imagine going through my PhD without God to be able to pray for strength and to know that he's going to redeem these long hours spent in the library, right? But imagine a world without God, and Paul is saying, I'm willing to go back to that world. I'm willing to go back. Now, why would he do that? What is fueling this desire to go backwards uh, in his faith? By the way, let me just say there's precedent for this. He wasn't the only one. In Exodus, interestingly enough, Moses says to God, "Um, please now forgive their sin, the people of Israel. And if you don't, then blot me out of the book of life. Uh, if 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 I can't have revival among the children of Israel, then blot me out of the book of life. So what prompted such a response? This is what Paul says. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Uh, Unceasing anguish um, is a consuming type of grief that never leaves you. It's to be tormented by something. I have some friends, we speak at Family Life Marriage Conference, they lost their child in a swimming accident 25 years ago. And you can speak to Rick and Judy, and in a heartbeat it resurfaces. 
You never get over a tragedy like that. But it was 25 years ago. Right? It follows them. And that's what Paul is saying. I have an unceasing burden towards my fellow Jews. I would give up my salvation. I'd be judged by God to go back if they would come to faith. The emotional torment Paul was feeling was almost unbearable. Now, just to show you what that torment is like a little bit, uh, listen to what Luther says. Luther greatly admired Paul at this point. He said, it seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. He was willing, for the sake of his list, he was willing to be cursed by God so that those people on his list would come to faith. Uh, one of my heroes is a man named Oliver Sacks. In grad school, we had to re- uh, read Awakenings. Awakening, uh, Robert Sacks was a very introverted man, but he was a brilliant uh, neurologist. And he was dealing with individuals from the 1920s uh, who had fallen prey to the encephalitis outbreak. So these were individuals who mentally were functioning, but they were in a catatonic state. It was like they were frozen. And Robert Sacks in the 1960s starts to play around with a drug called Eldopa, and lo and behold, he starts to bring people out of this canatotic state that they had been in for years. It was made into a really powerful movie called Awakenings, with Robert De Niro as a patient, and Robin Williams was nominated for Best Actor, uh, playing Oliver Sacks. Watch the trailer real quick from Awakenings. So Robert De Niro's character, as a young boy, was infected and went into that catatonic state. So when he comes out, he's literally like a boy. He, he wants to read everything he hasn't been able to read. He wants to experience things. The greatest compliment he gets is he's dressed up in the hospital and somebody mistakes him for a visitor to the hospital, not a lifelong uh, inmate of the hospital. But here's the tragedy of awakenings. Eldopa was in its first stages and started to wear off. And Robert Sachs couldn't stop it. So these poor individuals that now were experiencing life saw what their future was. They saw each other start to move back towards uncontrollable body motions, knowing that they're eventually going to go back into a catatonic state. So watch uh, this next scene where Robert De Niro is in the midst of going back and he can't control his body anymore. Now imagine the doctors come to Robert De Niro. And they say, listen, what we're about to ask you is unthinkable. But we believe if you go back that we could take your blood and form antibodies from the blood and we could save everybody else. We could keep them from going back. But it requires that you go back and we take the antibodies from your blood. If you were Robert De Niro, would you do that? And if you did, knowing what you were heading back towards would almost be unthinkable. That's the position the Apostle Paul is in. Paul is saying, I know, I just wrote Romans chapter 8, but I'm willing to go back. Think of the emotional weight of that. So what, what would Paul be giving up? Take a look at these passages. Let's remind ourselves. Paul's willing to go back to condemnation. All of God's anger is back on him. That flood of judgment. Romans chapter 2 is heading right back towards him. He's now a slave to sin. He can envision a righteous life. He can't pull it off anymore because now he has the sin nature again. Uh, There's no promise of glory to offset the suffering. Sorry, Paul, there's no magical ending to this story. Um, There's no release of the inward groaning. You are a worker, aunt. Enough said. 
there's no redeeming of tragedy. There's no God to redeem it in your life anymore. Then lastly, you can be separated from Christ, and in fact, you will. Now, here's what I think about this. It's a litmus test for me. It's a gut check. I came up with my list. Now, do I think about them every single day? No. So that means I don't pray for them every single day. Amazing how I can forget about these individuals. Um, So what does God want from me? Does he want me to be willing to give up my salvation for... for, um, Uh, these individuals? I don't think so. So in my humble opinion, having written a paper about this, I would throw my hat into the ring of people who would say that Paul's being hypothetical at that point. He's saying, if it were possible, I wish I could do this. But he just wrote Romans 8. He knows nothing can separate him from the love of Christ. I think Paul is speaking in, in a hypothetical sense that he would go back, but he knows that he can't, but he would be willing to do it. That's what God says to me at this point. Tim, do you have unceasing grief towards the people on your list? I mentioned once before that we had a missionary come to our church in North Carolina when I was doing grad work. He, he was a missionary to parts of Africa. And he got up and he was giving a, uh, an update and, and talking about the people who don't know Christ um, in Africa and started to weep. I don't know if you've ever heard a person weep publicly before. It's really uncomfortable. He tried to get it back together. He couldn't. The pastor had to come, the senior pastor, put his arm around him and lead him off the stage. The entire time he's weeping. And I, th- I think to myself, have I ever shed a tear for someone who doesn't know Christ? No. Just to put you all at rest, I never have. And I don't know why. Is it because I don't believe hell's real? I- I- of course I believe it theologically, biblically, but do I really live as if hell is a distinct possibility for the people that I care about? Uh, do I, have I lost hope that the people could change on my list? Um, have I just become hard-hearted to the people on my list? I think it's good for us to come before the Lord and to say, Lord, I need, I need a heart check right now. Remember what King David prayed? He said, Lord, search my heart. I want to know if there's anything within me that needs changing or needs a type of softening. Let me mention one other point. So for Paul, it was hypothetical. Let's look at one person that it wasn't hypothetical. It was actually a reality. Uh, Jesus In Matthew 27, verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what was hypothetical for Paul is reality for Jesus. Jesus does take on the sins of the world, and God the Father, in righteous judgment, turns his back on Jesus. I mean, that is a profound mystery of the scriptures. But Jesus felt that type of pain. It wasn't just physical pain on the cross. It was emotional, psychological pain on the cross of now having the Father turn his back on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus assumed the sins of the entire world. Uh, Now listen, I understand what I'm saying is theologically controversial. There's two sides of the argument. Those of you from a Reformed perspective, there's a different side to this. But I think personally, and many theologians, that Jesus took on the sins of everybody, past, present, future. So, the horrible things happening in Paris. The scandalous nature of God is he died for the victims and he died for the terrorists who blew themselves up. He died for both. He took their sins upon himself and now our job is to receive him as savior. So when he has the sins of the world on him, right, by his wounds we are healed, says the book of Isaiah, God turns his back on him. 
Now, what are we supposed to do at this point? Well, let me read to you a quote. Now, they tell us in public speaking classes not to read really long quotes. Well, I'm going to break a traditional principle, and I'm going to read a really long quote from John Stott that has kind of haunted me. And because it haunts me, I thought I would just ruin your Sunday. So here we go. (laughs) This is John Stott. It is within this prophetic tradition of tragedy of sorrow over people's rejection of God's word and over the resultant inevitability of judgment that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He cried out, if, you, if even you had only known on this day what would bring peace. Uh, Jerusalem would be sacked in 70 AD. Not one stone would be left upon each other and Jesus is begging them to repent, but they won't. In this, too, Paul had the mind of Christ. He wrote of the great sorrow and unceasing anguish he felt in his heart for his own race, the people of Israel. His heart's desire and prayer to God was for their salvation. He was willing, like Moses before him, to be himself cursed and cut off from Christ, if only thereby his people may be saved. He had the same deep feelings for Gentiles. For three whole years in Ephesus, as he reminded the church elders of the city, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with my tears. I long that in some small way we stand in the tearful tradition of Jeremiah, Jesus, and Paul. I want to see more tears among us. I think we need to repent of our nonchalantness, our hard-heartedness. Men and women, half the work of evangelism will be done if we have a heart towards the people that are lost. Communication studies, a ton of them have said there is something called emotional contagion, which means how I feel about you, though I never communicated outwardly, absolutely bleeds onto you. You get a vibe from a person. And I think as a church, if the lost knew that we are shedding tears over them, if they knew that we are imploring God to work in their hearts, they will pick up on that in a heartbeat. They'll get the feeling that this church really does care for the poor. We really do care for the lost. We really do care for the people on our list. And we have wept tears over their salvation. That's hard to be angry at people who care for you in such a way as that. I think that's what the gay community needs to hear today. Hey, listen, we have disagreements, but we love you. We're all in process. We love you. Those people who reject our religion doesn't mean we reject you. Our love for you will always be one of anguished compassion towards you. If we have that kind of compassion, people will feel it in this community, literally feel it, that we are a compassionate community that comes to your help out of love, no matter uh, where the debate is currently on different kind of issues. So let me say, I think there's two groups. Uh, after this morning's first sermon, I had a bunch of people come up to me and say, boy, I'm, I'm too consumed with the people on my list. I don't even sleep at night anymore. And I want to recognize that there could be individuals like that. So I would say, I think faith is entrusting those individuals to God at the end of the day, saying, Lord, you're working on these people 24-7. I love what C.S. Lewis said. uh, God is the hound of heaven. And once he gets a person sent, he is on that person. I think 24-7, God is working in the hearts of every person on your list. So I think there are individuals you're too consumed and you, and you can't sleep at night and trust these people to God. God works on them 24-7. That's not where I'm at. I'm not there. I'm over here where I've never shed a tear for a lost person. I, I want us to pray this for this week. I want us to pray, Lord, let us see the list through your eyes. Let us see the list through Jesus who died for every single person on that list. I I hope that would move me to explore why I'm not moved with unceasing grief like the Apostle Paul was. 
What is it that's keeping me from having that kind of reaction? So I want to pray for a softening this week of my heart. Say, Lord, let me see each one of these people through your perspective. Let me pray for them. Let me intercede. I think it'd be totally appropriate to enter into a time of fasting for these individuals. I think it'd be appropriate for us corporately to pray for people. I think it'd be great to invoke other friends you have to pray for these individuals. Share our list with each other and jump in and say we're committed to this. But the first thing we need to do is have a heart softening. And the Apostle Paul saying, I'm willing to go back and I know exactly what I'm talking about. God's not asking you to go back. He's asking you to go forward with a heart of compassion. Let me pray for us. Father, we are humbled by the Apostle Paul. We're humbled by a man who persecuted the church. We're humbled by a man who'd be willing to go back to being Saul. Father, I pray for my own heart for softening for the people on my list. Father, I pray that we'd be a church that would deeply love and be troubled by people who aren't experiencing the type of life, the type of love that we're experiencing. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are consumed by family members, loved ones that don't know you. I pray you'd give them peace, a sense of release that you are working in the hearts of these individuals. I pray for many like me who were not troubled enough. Father, let us follow in the tradition of Paul, of Jesus, of Jeremiah. Start with us today, soften our hearts, and we do entrust these lists to you. We pray in Jesus' sake, amen.